We're continuing our Tales of the Unexpected, as they've been entitled, and I'm using David's pro forma. Tales of the Unexpected number eight, if I've counted right. And we're looking in, we're looking, we're turning to Luke chapter 18. And what I want to do is to read a few verses. Um, from Luke chapter 18. And what I want to do is recap a little bit about where this parable, which is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, is in Scripture. And to do that, I'll just go back to the preceding parable. 18.1 Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that you should always pray and not give up. And if you were to go back into the previous chapter, the context of that is the context of Jesus returning again to not give up because Jesus was coming back again. So Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Then if we go down to verse 8, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. We'll come back to the passage and fill in the top and bottom, which I haven't read just yet. Context was judgment. Jesus was talking about the coming of the kingdom And we're hearing a little bit about that last week, the ten wise, ten foolish virgins. And Jesus says here in Luke, in chapter 17, 30, the day when the Son of Man is revealed, he talks about being ready, being prepared. But he knew that in waiting for the day there would be impatience. Hence the parable about the persistent widow. And you've heard about that too, a little bit about that, about persisting in prayer, waiting for Jesus' return. However, linked with persistence in prayer is the question of attitudes in prayer. You could be very persistent in your praying. You could pray regularly, but you might pray with the wrong attitude, with the wrong approach to God. So if you're persisting in prayer for what is now, if you were alive since Jesus left 2,000 odd years, There was the danger that you came with the wrong attitude. So Jesus told this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector to garnish and to get us right in terms of our attitudes to God in prayer. What I want to do now is paint the scene. Think about what the parable is about. And we've read this so many times, we know so much about it, it's hard just to step back Put here what you know about the parable and just listen to it and think about it afresh. Hard to do that, but try and do that. 
try and listen to this. It's from the CEV Contemporary English Version. Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not greedy, dishonest and unfaithful in marriage like other people. And I am really glad that I am not like that tax collector over there. I go without eating for two days a week and I give you a tenth of all I earn. The tax collector stood off at a distance, did not think he was good enough even to look up to heaven. He was so sorry for what he had done that he pounded his chest and prayed, God, have pity on me. I am a sinner. We have two characters here, two people. We have a Pharisee. What do you know about Pharisees? Well, Pharisees were a group who attempted to live every part of their lives in complete obedience to the law of Moses. They were serious, godly people. Don't think of the caricature of them as being people who were ridiculous. They were serious, godly people. The sort of people you would want to live next door to because they would treat you, by and large, with respect. They were the sort of people who did what was right. His life was exemplified as a Pharisee by a number of things. By prayer. Pious Jews were required to pray at least twice a day. This Pharisee obviously did that. They were required to fast once a year was prescribed for them. And other fasts which were optional, such as Purim and also their fast mentioned in Zechariah. But this man fasted twice a week. So he was approximately a hundred times more obedient to the law than he needed to be. He tithed. He didn't just tithe what he cultivated, what he earned. He also tithed what was given to him by others. If he bought produce in the market, he tithed it just in case it hadn't been tithed by the person who had produced it, who had sold it to him. It wasn't necessary on the law, but where was the money going? The money was going into the temple. It was going to God's work. So therefore, what he was doing was wonderful. It was to be applauded. Here was a praying man. Here was a fasting man. Here was a tithing man. Here was a man who rendered God thanksgiving for all that he had in his life. His life had been blessed by God. He was comfortable. Therefore, he didn't have to steal He didn't have to live an immoral life. He didn't have to live a base existence like a tax collector. He would say, perhaps in our language, there but for the grace of God, go I. God has blessed me. There's a prayer from the Talmud, the Jewish holy book, which says, I thank thee, O Lord God, that thou hast given me my lot with those who sit in the house of study and not with those who sit at the street corners. I am early to work on the words, the words of the Torah, and they are early to work on things of no moment. I weary myself and profit thereby, while they weary themselves to no profit. I run towards the life of the age to come, and they run towards the pit of destruction. Here was a wonderfully religious and very sincere group of people He tried with their utmost ability to follow God. He avoided as much as he could transgression the law. And he gives God the praise for that. He doesn't say that that it's him that's doing it. He gives God the praise. 
he gives God a sacrifice of praise. He was, if you like, a David-like figure from the Old Testament to the contemporary society. So Jesus tells this parable. He presents this David-like figure to his hearers. So the hearers are warming to the story. This is their hero, they think, as they listen to the first part of the parable. And then, a complete and utter contrast. A tax collector walks into the scene. Here was a man who was a sinner from the outset. Pharisees would never miss the appointed times at the temple. Tax collector would hardly ever darken the temple door. He would never be there. In the Jewish mind, it's a contrast between Mordecai, the great saviour of the Jews in the book of Esther, to Haman, the person who was trying to exterminate the Jews. Here you have a Daniel, the Pharisee, compared to a Nebuchadnezzar or a Belshazzar. Here you have an Isaac compared to an Ishmael. Here you have a Jacob compared to an Esau. A David compared to a Saul. The tax collector was suspect from the beginning. Tax collectors made their profit, their living, by collecting taxes on a sort of a franchise basis. They were an early sort of form of McDonald's. They were given the franchise for an area. But they were professional swindlers. They had to take more than the tax so that they could live. So they took as much as they could. They were viewed as worse than robbers. They were viewed as worse than adulterers. They were the ultimate evildoers. They were Jews who collaborated with the Romans, who did what the occupying forces said. They had no civic rights in society with the normal Jewish people. They were ostracized by decent people. He was stealing from his neighbor. He was sinning against the command of God. The nearest comparison I could get was to the paramilitary in our own context going out and collecting protection money. However, this man was legitimately allowed to go and collect this money. He wasn't doing anything illegal. The forces of order allowed him to do it. It was that feeling of what he was doing was completely unjust. And people hated tax collectors for that. How could he possibly demand God's forgiveness? Well, he couldn't. The view of society was that he had to give up what he was doing. Sorrow for his sins wasn't enough. He had to restore all he had embezzled, plus a fifth. How could he know everyone whom he had embezzled from so that he could be restored to a proper relationship within the Jewish system? I was trying to think of a, a contrast between these two people in modern parlance, in modern ideas. I don't know. Think of Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela or Desmond Tutu, somebody who is highly respected in the world, in all of society, on one side and a paedophile on the other side. That's the sort of distance between these two characters in the society at the time. One was highly esteemed the other was treated with utter contempt. So we have two characters. We know who the hero is. The people who are listening have their hero marked out. We know who the villain is. The villain is marked out in the story. But the cracks start to appear. The unexpected 
starts to creep in. And where does it creep in? It creeps in with the prayer. As the Pharisee prays, we start to get a hint of something uncomfortable. An anticipation of a twist in the tale. The Pharisee stood and prayed. Standing and praying out loud was common and proper for a man like this. But he prayed about himself. Another translation says he stood over by himself and prayed. Another says he stood and said to himself, I thank thee that I am not like other men. This was the sense of a man looking God in the eye, erect and bold before God, sure of himself, but his body language revealed where his heart was. It was a proud heart. And then we have the tax collector. He's hardly even inside the temple. He's in the porch door. He won't even come in through the door as the deacons open it up for him, so to speak. He's down there. He won't come into the main auditorium. He's standing afar off. That word afar off is the same word as was used of the prodigal son. The father saw him afar off. The same idea. He's standing out of sight. He's just inside the temple and no more. He's not standing erect. He's crouched down. He's beating his breast. This is a dramatic gesture. Something that was usually reserved for women. This is what women did to show their contrite position. Not what men did. His prayer, there was no praise. There was no adoration. There was no thanksgiving. There was just despair. What are the words that come out? God, be merciful to me. Where do those words come from? Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. All he added in was to me, a sinner. He was quoting the first line of Psalm 51, which we were thinking about in the church just recently. I wasn't here that Sunday. Listen to some of the words of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. This was David's great psalm of contrition after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out all my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak. Hide your face from my sins. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Offerings and sacrifices are not what you want. The way to please you is to feel sorry deep in our hearts. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. What a prayer. Not suggesting that he prayed at all, but as he prayed the first verse, the whole intensity and content of that psalm was behind this tax collector's prayer. So where are we with the story now? We had a hero. We had a villain. We had a Pharisee. We had a tax collector. 
Now we've got a twist. What we are, what are we doing? We're not comparing good to bad. We're not comparing accumulation of good works against accumulation of evil works. We're comparing the self-righteous to the penitent. The person who, while doing all the right, and he shouldn't have been stopped from doing all these right things, is depending on those very actions for his acceptance before God. There's not an even a hint or an expression in the Pharisee's mind of confession or repentance. What has come out of all the good of the Pharisee? Matthew Henry, writing many hundreds of years ago, said, it was, the good, it was good that the Pharisee was no extortioner. He wasn't unjust, but the devil made him proud of this to his ruin. The good of the Pharisee was turned to evil. The good that he did was turned to evil. But what about the tax collector? In this case, good was brought out of evil. The power of God's grace, as he came as a penitent sinner, brought good out of the evil that he had done. So what's the application for all this for us? As I said, the key is heart attitude. Not what we've done. Not who we are. It's not, are we a tax collector? Or not, are we a Pharisee? It's, who am I like? Am I like a Pharisee? Or am I like a tax collector? Luke, remember, wrote to Gentiles. As he wrote to Gentiles, there was probably, probably no Pharisees in the audience that he was writing to. So how did Luke set this parable in context? He said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. So it's not just Pharisees. It's everyone, Jew or Gentile, who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Whichever one of these two attitudes reflects our relationship with God in this life, the opposite will characterize our status in the next. Because what does Luke, how does Luke finish it off? He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You're humble and penitent in this life, God exalts you. You're proud and exalt yourself in this life, God humbles you. And that's what the psalm is teaching the psalm. The parable is teaching us. You see, the Pharisee got it completely wrong. His religion, with all its good things, and it was a wonderful... I mean, don't knock what the Pharisees did. In their day and time, they were more evangelical than we were. We are. They were firm to the faith. They were enthusiastic. They were keen. They were committed. But he had got it wrong. It was interesting. I was reading um, something written by this man who's a Danish writer from the 19th century. He was describing Danish state religion at the time he was writing. And he says, as a religion, it was just about as genuine as tea made from a bit of paper which once lay in a drawer beside another bit of paper which had once been used to wrap up a few dried tea leaves 
from which tea had already been made three times. The Pharisees' religion was that useful to him because of the attitude that he had adopted. It was the penitent who was accepted by God, not the self-righteous. So you say to me, Nigel, what about me? And what I want to just simply draw out by way of application is some of the ways, and they're not necessarily all of them, which we can fall into telltale signs of seeking to find our own acceptance before God. Because we all want to say, well, am I like the Pharisee? I don't want to be like a Pharisee. How do I avoid that? What are the telltale signs of acting self-righteous and self-justifying before God? As I say, I have a set of them here. They're interlinked, and they're probably not all that can be said. But hopefully, they'll help us. First thing that could tell us that we're self-justifying, seeing one set of sins as being worse than another. To the Pharisee, what the tax collector did was infinitely worse than anything that he had ever done. And yet the tax collector was probably a very good family man, probably cared for a, a very large extended family because he was so wealthy. And yet the Pharisee stood up and said, what you're doing, the sort of person you are, is completely wrong. And he's basically saying, my set of sins are fine. Your set of sins will condemn you. And we all do that, don't we? We self-justify. I have never done A, but you've done B. Sorry, I've never done A. I may have done B, but then B isn't as bad as A. So therefore, you're condemned, but I'm fine, because your sin, in my judgment, is worse than my sin. So we see one set of sins as being worse than another. Another way in which we can fall into the trap is we set our standards for others by the society or the culture around us. The Pharisee was guided by what was respectable in his culture, first century Judaism. Yet that same society did what? It sent people to the cross for execution if they didn't fit in. That was the society standards which he upheld. So we have to be careful that the standards that we're judging others by are not the societies or the cultures in which we move. There's been a lot of discussion recently about assisted suicide. I don't want to go into the debate tonight, but let me ask you a question. When you think of that issue, the decisions that you're making, are you making those on what is popular out there in our society, or are you making it on your knowledge of God's word? Are you influenced by society or by God's word? We can judge by our own measure and not by God's. In essence, the Pharisee had set up his own tribunal. He was judge, jury, and almost executioner. He was based on serious Judaism, past Judaism, but somehow he had got it wrong. What about us? We can be brought up as Christians in a Christian home, attend church regularly, and we think that gives us the privilege of setting up our own set of standards to judge 
everyone else by. And there's an amazing, and a, a terrible danger in all that. Our conscience is given to us. And we can use our conscience. But remember, our conscience must be informed by God's word. Another way to look out for telltale signs of self-justification. Having apparent love for God which doesn't lead to compassion for others. This man knew the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind. But he didn't show any love or concern for the tax collector. In fact, it was just the opposite. He showed utter and absolute contempt for the man. His love for God wasn't translated into compassion for others. What about us? How do we view the marginalized, the less fortunate, the less affluent, the less educated, those of the non-professional classes, the poor, the criminal, the pedophile? You insert a category. We mustn't condone sin, but we must show compassion. This man was incapable, it seems, of showing compassion. Our righteousness drives us away from others. The Pharisee shows no grace to the tax collector at all, no mercy, no compassion. It just drove him away. There was no interaction. The Pharisees wouldn't take anything to do with sinners. And remember, that's what Jesus was condemned for when he interacted with people like this. The the Pharisee had grace. He experienced grace in his life. But his grace didn't lead to showing grace to anyone else, certainly not to the tax collector. Therefore, the question is, was it grace at all in his life? And that's a, a telling question, I think, for us. If we claim to be believers, we claim to have experienced God's grace, and yet that translates into not showing grace towards others. The question may be asked, have we experienced grace at all? Feeling no horror for the lostness of those outside, the Pharisee should have looked at the tax collector and felt a desire to reach the lost. He didn't. All he saw was someone who had to be treated with contempt. What about us? As we look at the world around us, people are lost in so many ways. Lost because they don't know Jesus. Lost in poverty. Lost in terrible circumstances. Do we feel any horror for those lost who are on the outside of what we have experienced? The grace and the truth and the knowledge of sin's forgiveness. And the last thing to say is there are feelings which tell us we are fine but behaviour which betrays that we are, we are lost. You know the Pharisee was absolutely convinced that he was right, wasn't he? He was so bold in the temple. He was okay. He was justified before God. But as he stood up and prayed, his actions portrayed that he wasn't. His manner of approach in prayer, the way in which he spoke to God, his audible contempt of the tax collector showed that in fact he was lost himself. What about us? 
in ourselves, our approach to God, we believe that we are fine. But someone else looking at us from the outside, what would they see? Would they see someone who was right before God? Or would they see someone who by their very behavior exhibits lostness before God? How do you conclude all this? How do you finish this? I want to finish it with just one thought. And that thought is the astounding dynamic of the grace of God. Because it comes to us again fresh across the centuries. Whatever your position, whether you're good, like a Pharisee, or bad, like a tax collector, what we need is God's grace, not our own acts. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ alone. Christ presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There is no room for boasting of what we have done, of what we could do, of the potential that we have to do. It's excluded. We come and we cry like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what happens then? God exalts us. God raises us up. He doesn't put us down. He raises us up. He justifies. He says, this man goes home justified before God. The person who comes penitentially to him. What I want us to do is to remain seated and to sing. Sing this song, only by grace can we enter. Not like the Pharisee, but like the tax collector. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Let's just remain seated and sing.
singers could just stay at the front. Let's pray together. Father, we come into your presence now. We come saying, have mercy on us. And Lord, as we come saying that, Lord, we realize that we must come depending on someone else. We come depending on the Lord Jesus and his death for us. Lord, draw us now, we pray, into your presence. In Jesus' name. So where should our focus be? I mean, we're all tempted to be like the Pharisee. And the antidote is the cross. If we can focus on the cross, it will focus us away from ourselves. It will focus us towards Jesus. And that is the ultimate antidote to self-justification or self-justifying before God, the cross.